0: Today's show is sponsored by Rooter Than You Dragons. Rooter Than You Dragons is a family-owned reptile business based off in Paramount, California. They specialize in bearded dragons and their genetics. They'll also have tegu lizards, ball pythons, leopard geckos, boas, and a little bit of everything your heart desires. Genetics he will be producing are weros, zeros, witblits, hypos, and translucent. They are very healthy with very vibrant colors, pretty much show-stopping dragons. Believe me, go check out their Instagram. I just checked it out. That shit is awesome. Thank you very much, Ruder Than You Dragons. I appreciate you sponsoring the show. Is everybody in? Is everybody in? The podcast is about to begin. Graveyard
1: Grumbler Podcast.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 100 of the Graveyard Grumbler Podcast. I am your host, Tino Romero Jr., a.k.a. The Graveyard Grumbler. Today's episode is one that's near and dear to my memory. I remember learning about this case when I was a wee little lad. Well, I didn't learn about it, but I watched it on television. I watched a trial with my mom and my father, my faja, with my papa. And I understood a little bit of it when I was a kid. Not Well, I shouldn't say I understood about it. I was like about... I was like eight years old when I heard the trial. This happened in the 80s early 90s. So I was around between eight and 10 years old when I started watching this with my parents. We used to watch it every evening when we'll, we'll, the news would come on about five o'clock. That's when my Westwood and Papa got home. And we would check this, this trial out. So today's episode is going to be about the Menendez brothers, the 100th episode. And let me tell you something before I even get started. I had the most difficult time trying to figure out what episode and what I wanted to do for my 100th episode. But, no, but but the way that I came up with it was that this trial, this, this incident, this piece of history has been popping up in my head now going on for about six months to a year. It just kept popping up in the back of my head. Do the case of Menendez brothers. Do the Menendez brothers. Do the Menendez brothers. And so I said, all right, already. I'll do the goddamn Menendez brothers. I'll do it for episode 100. And so here we are. After I uh, did, after I released my Patreon episode earlier today, which is a chilling Patreon episode, by the way. Everyone should go check that out. Just join it. It's $5. Just go check it out, please. We're going to do the episode on the Menendez brothers, and it, it's a it's a pretty fucked up case. It, I mean, it's a closed case. It's not a cold case. Everyone knows what happened, so we'll go ahead and get right into it. So who are the Menendez brothers? Lyle and Eric's father, Jose Enriquez Menendez, was born on May 6, 1944 in Havana, Cuba, at age 16, shortly after the start of the Cuban Revolution, he moved to the to the United States. Jose attended Southern Illinois University where he met Mary Louise Kitty Anderson, which was alive from 1941 to 1989. They married in 1963 and moved to New York City where Jose earned an accounting degree from Queens College. So this is basically basic Harry Met Sally. Not very much interesting, nothing more. Jose was a, a Cubano refugee that... Right around the Cuban War, the the he might he immigrated over to the United States. I mean, if you look at history, there's there was a lot of uh, Cubano refugees that fled uh, Cuba in order to get to the United States for freedom. Just like in the late '80s, there was a mass migration from Cuba over to the United States. That Fidel pretty much sent all of his deplorables to the United States to lessen his prisons and kind of make. Cuba, a better country, so people wouldn't have to worry about crime. But what didn't work out on that part is that it was a Cuban dictatorship and it just fucked up the entire country. The couple's first son, Joseph Lyle Menendez, who goes by his middle name, was born on January 10th, 1968. Kitty quit quit her teaching job after Lyle was born, and the family moved to New Jersey, where Eric was born, on November 27th, 1970, in Gloucester Township. In New Jersey, the family lived in Hopewell Township, and both brothers attended Princeton Day School. So, I mean, right out the gate, they were already Princeton, pretty townships. They had a pretty wealthy, highfalutin-type type vibe going on, you know. Well, why not? He's going to fight from the bottom. He's going to get his degree. Well, of course, you're going you're to do what you can to make a better living for your family. The Menendez, the Menendez family seemed to be a perfect model of the American dream, at least by, the, by 1980 standards. Jose was born in Cuba, immigrated to the United States after the the Cuban Revolution of the 1950s, living in the attic of a cousin's home until he earned a college scholarship for swimming. He was a pretty athletic guy. I mean, you have to. I'm not going to. I'll stop there. I'm not going to make that joke. That's racist. And I will not. I refuse to participate in that joke. (laughs) He wooed and married Kitty, a beauty pageant queen, and and then rose from washing dishes to becoming a successful young entertainment executive. Jose spent the early 80s as the head of the RCA records and had a hand in signing the signing of such bands as Duran Duran and the Eurythmics. For all of you who are into music, Duran Duran is not, I wouldn't brag about signing Duran Duran or the Eurythmics. Come on now. No knock on people who like Duran Duran, but I just don't think Duran Duran was that big of of, of a deal. I mean, they had some great hits, but I mean, it's Duran Duran. Come on now. The house in which Jose and Kitty were killed was located on one of the most exclusive blocks in Beverly Hills and was at different times occupied by Michael Jackson and Elton John. So from his RCA, his RCA run when he was head of RCA, where he was signing big bands, he was making tons of money, several hundred thousand dollars a year. Then he decided, hey, I need to upgrade in my career. So I am going to head into Beverly Hills and I'm going to sign on with a movie company to sign actors, make big deals and... Pretty much scout for talent. Well, unfortunately, what the company that he went to was not doing very well. And I can't remember the name of the company, but it was losing money every year and they were close to shutting down. Well, when Jose came in, he he doubled the drop, making 2 million that first year. And then the second year that he was employed, he made it up all the way up to CEO, I believe. And he quadrupled the earnings to around four million dollars. And of course, by that, he makes more money himself. So making giving himself a multi or a million dollar salary for the uh, growing and saving of the business that he did in order to to jump into the to the business to the movie entertainment. The Menendez brothers had moved to Los Angeles just a few years before the murder, so that, so that Jose could take a job in the movie business. Again, he was he was a talent scout looking for high priced actors in order to make the film company that he worked for grow. Their sons, Lyle and Eric, who were 21 and 18 respectively at the time of the killings, also seemed like the platonic ideal of the Reagan-era United States. Lyle was a star tennis player who attended Princeton and seemed destined for a career in business like the father he openly worshipped. Eric turned out to be even better at tennis, helped along by his father's obsessive intervention, and wound up as a nationally ranked player in his age bracket. Allegedly, according to reports... Again, we don't know how truth this is. The only few people that know the truth are Eric Lyle and the br- and the, the husband and the father, the husband and the father, <laughs> the mother and the father. So according to to reports, Jose was completely tyrannical. He would make his kids practice hours on end, hurt, hungry, sore. It didn't matter. You're going to be the best there is, the best there was, and the best there ever will be. Period. I don't care what it costs. I don't care what you have to sacrifice. This is what you're going to do, and that's what you're going to do. Bottom line. So they found, I mean, they were in multiple sports, and they fell in love with tennis. Tennis is one of those sports that they enjoy doing the most. And so they were just grinding out private lessons, personal trainers, and they ended up being literally around their age in the early 20s and late late teens. They were some of the nationally ranked players. I think Eric was ranked in the top Forty of his age bracket, and Lyle was in the top, like, 45, I believe. I, I think that's what I read. I've done a lot of reading today for my Patreon, for the show, and to get prepped for next week's radio show. So I, I, forgive me if I, if I get my, my, my numbers a little bit crossed, but I believe that's what it was. In a sense, they had no choice but to be successful. Jose was known as a hard-driving father who would work his children to the bone in athletics and everything else. They were mandatory. Apparently, if they didn't get good grades or they didn't put out what he thought was two thousand percent effort, he they'd get the shit beat out of them. Allegedly, we don't know how true that is. This is just something that's going to pop up later on in this episode. But I mean, if you think about it, is there is there something wrong with with your father or your parents just grinding it, making you grind down to the bone in order for you to be successful, have a well balanced life, and have connections made for the future? You can either fall in on business or you can fall in on an amateur circuit playing tennis. Which one would you choose? You know what? Beat me down as a kid. That way I'm set up for success in the future. I think that's what's lacking in a lot of parents. I mean, don't get me wrong. It also takes money and dedication in order for that to happen. And in my case... It we just I mean just my stars didn't align for me to get to be set up for success the way that I I, I wanted to be which is I mean I'm successful now don't get me wrong I mean I, I grinded from the grindstone from the bottom up now I'm here you know I'm started from the bottom now I'm here and I, I'm pretty successful in what I do so it was also said quote it seemed like Jose was so competitive he was doing everything he could to try to make him better end quote said their former swim coach uh, when he spoke to the Los Angeles Times in 1990 but he was so completely overbearing it had the opposite effect. Eric had so much less self-confidence because everything he did was never good enough. Now I know how that feels. You just don't think, the, it's just a shitty thing. When you think you're, you're grinding, you're, you're, you're pushing your kid to be the best. You want your kids to be the number one, to be outstanding and to be, release their full potential into the sport that you see that they love, that it ends up making them less confident for the fact that they feel that whatever they do is never good enough. And that's really shitty. I mean, I, it's a, it's a fine balance, but it's also a blurred line. It's also a thin line that you can easily cross break, jump over, do whatever you what it is to, to fuck up that, that blurred line. And your, your kids end up hating you, hating the sport and hating doing anything. That's going to make them feel less than what they should feel. I mean, you, you should make your kids feel the most amazing ever in the world. And, what a lot of people forget when they have kids is that, look, high school sports is just that. It's high school. Yeah, if they're going to make a career out of it, I understand. But a lot of kids, don't not they're not going to make a career out of, out of their high school sports. They just want something that's going to kill some time after school, meet some cool buddies, and have fun playing a sport they enjoy playing. Stop pressuring them. Once they get into college, that's different. Then, I mean, that's when shit gets serious because they have a potential of being drafted and, and going into professional sports. That's completely different. But in high school, just let them be high school kids, man. Goddamn. Let them enjoy their life. Once they moved to California, Eric began to run with some teenage delinquents, getting himself in trouble for a string of burglaries. Lyon, Lyle enrolled in Princeton University, but was suspended for a year for plagiarism, portending a troubled next few years. I never heard that word, Portending. So let's get into the crimes. Obviously, if I'm doing the crime, I'm doing this, this theories. there's something fucked up that happened. We, again, not many people are familiar with the Menendez case that are outside of California and are, that were born in the 2000s. If you were, or if you are born in the eighties, like I was, I was born in 81. I mean, this was one of the heart of the fly. This in the, what is this? The, not John Benet. Uh, what was her name? Daisy Fuentes out of California, out of Bakersfield, where she was kidnapped and she was never found. That was, that was the heart of our of my childhood. So was the Menendez brothers, so was the O.J. Simpson trial. Those were three major cases that I remember growing up, but I just can't find any, any information on Daisy Fuentes, which it sucks. On the evening of August 20th, 20th, 1989, Jose and Kitty were sleeping on a couch in the den of their Beverly Hills mansion when Lyle and Eric entered the den carrying shotguns. Jose was shot in the back of the head with a Mossberg 12-gauge shotgun. Kitty was awakened by the shots and rose from the couch. She was shot in the leg and fell and was then shot several times in the arm, chest, and face, leaving her unrecognizable. Kitty was awakened by the shots and rose from the couch. She was shot in the leg and fell and was then shot several times in the arm, chest, and face, leaving her unrecognizable. Now listen to me and listen to me clearly. If the kids actually did this shit, there has been some pent-up, psychotic, sociopathic features and symptoms that were so prevalent that they were just overlooked by the parents. Either they, the Menendez brothers buried the animals that they killed or they hid the crimes that they committed against their friends or acquaintances. There's no way that randomly... A bunch of a bunch of kids, a bunch of sons are just gonna brutally murder their parents that way. They shot the dad in the back of the head with a Mossberg 12 gauge shotgun. Then with that same exact or with this because they had two shotguns, with the second shotgun, they're gonna unleash a hail of bullets on the mom, making her unrecognizable. When I hear that, it reminds me of something of something similar to RoboCop One, when Murphy was shot by the thugs down in the in that warehouse. I, you, just, you just unload on your on your mother like that. Now, I, again, I, I don't see. I, I'm not a therapist. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a psychiatrist, so I, I can't give a professional medical opinion regarding their state of mind or regarding their attitude or anything like that. But in my unprofessional, barely learned opinion. I believe that there was clear signs of sociopathic features of I, that that were on display but because the dad was pushing them so hard to thrive so hard for success that they overlooked it as maybe being disgruntled or being upset or just the price you pay for being successful. I just can't fathom any anybody anybody with non sociopathic Features are going to be able to, to shoot their parents, leaving one parent unrecognizable. I just, I just don't see that. I, I just don't, I just don't see that happening without. Now, again, we, we talked about it before, where whenever we see people, psychotic killers, sociopaths, stuff like that, there has been a severe case of abuse. Now, in this case, we haven't heard of any abuse just yet right? Right. So what do you think? Let me know in the comments, graveyardgrumbler at mail.com or Graveyard Grumbler podcast on Podbean and my Instagram. Let me know, leave me a comment. What do you think was the cause of their sociopathic behavior and for them to flip out and literally murder their parents in cold blood, leaving one parent unrecognizable? For me personally, I, I, I just skimmed through this when I started getting all this information together. So I have a right to comment because I haven't read any, all of it. Thoroughly yet, we're going to do that together. There has to be some sort of abuse that that, has, that hasn't surfaced or hasn't been told. There has to be. In order for them to be so cold-hearted, turn off any sort of emotions and do what they did to their parents. There, there's, no, there's no arguments stating against it. There's no way. There's no way. When the brothers returned home later that night, Lyle, call, Lyle called the police and shouted, Someone killed my parents. Yeah, I wonder who that was. When the police arrived, the brothers told him that the murders occurred while they were at a movie theater seeing Batman and that they attended the annual Taste of LA festival in the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium. Likely alibis. You can still have the ticket stub in your pocket and you still have the ticket for the for the taste test or the tasting festival in uh, in LA. However, they didn't However, they did not order the brothers to undergo gunshot residue tests to find out whether they recently used a firearm, since at that time there was no clear evidence that suggested they might be involved. You know, I've mentioned this a couple times on on the rich privilege. When you go investigate a homicide, or not you personally, but whenever cops go investigate a homicide and and there's wealthy people involved— Usually the wealthy people are the last ones to be blamed and are the first ones to be let go. And that's proven with several cases and several crimes that have occurred in throughout history all across the United States regarding rich and wealthy people. And in this case, knowing that the Menendez brothers who lived in this, in this Beverly Hills mansion and they were well known around the community. The cops didn't suspect them to be the number one suspect, even just to clear their names. Instead, they let him go, carrying about your day. And don't worry about it, buddies. We'll give you a call if, if we need anything, okay, compadre? Dale gas, güey. Orale, Cuba. I mean, go, go eat. Go eat on Saguay Jamón. got it Jamón. So Again, rich privilege is is a real thing. We all know that. We've seen it in the news day and time and time again. We've seen it. We've seen drunk driving billionaires get off on just a slap on the wrist and probation after paying a million, three million dollars to get out of whatever they did. This is no different. In the months after the murders, the police connected the brothers' lavish spending to the murders of their parents. Lyle bought a Rolex watch, a Porsche Carrera, a $132,000 townhouse, and West townhouse townhouse in West Windsor, New Jersey and Chuck Spring what the and Chuck Spring Ca- Street Cafe, a buffalo wing restaurant in Princeton, New Jersey. Eric hired a full-time tennis coach and competed in a series t- of tournaments in Israel. Well, we all okay, let's get one thing straight. One thing straight. Why would you go around spending a lavish uh, spending all this money? What but, but then again, they're millionaires, so they're probably not not their spending habits probably wasn't very much different. If you think about it, if you're a multimillionaire, you're going to be able to spend as much money as you want, do what you want, and you're going to recoup and, re- and regain whatever financial exhaustion or financial loss that you, that you gave away. But being a millionaire, a lot of millionaires, yeah, they purchase lavish crap, but they're also pretty smart on it. That's why they, they're millionaires. They eventually left the Beverly Hills mansion unoccupied as they decided to live in adjoining condominiums in nearby Marina del Rey. They also drove around Los Angeles in their deceased mother's Mercedes-Benz SL convertible, dined expensively, and went on overseas trips to the Caribbean and London. See, again, I don't see what's the point of of driving around. I mean, your, your deceased mother's Mercedes, okay. I don't, I'm not sure what... Why that's such a big deal? I mean, it's their parents. I drove around in my mom's car, and she was still alive. It doesn't matter. I mean, it passed away or not, if I need some wheels, I'm going to drive around in the wheels. You know what I mean? And see, I don't, I don't understand why that would, why that would matter. But let's continue. It is believed they spent somewhere around seven hundred thousand dollars during the period between the murders and their arrest. But the submission of the brothers for their spending was later disputed by family members, who stated that there were no changes in their spendings before and after the killings. Boom. Proven right then and there They're millionaires They don't give a shit about money They're going to spend as much Whatever they want On whatever they want Why why would it make Why would it be any different For for them to spend that much money Before or after the the killings of their parents I mean If you look at their, their spending habits It's probably not different Because they have the money to do it During the early stages of the investigation The police tried to narrow the search To suspects who had motives To kill Jose and Kitty They also investigated potential mob leads, but nothing came out of them. As the investigation continued, the police believed that the brothers were most likely the perpetrators since they had obvious financial motives and were liberally spending money after the murders. So allegedly, Jose pissed off some big wig people in the movie industry, the father. He pissed off a bunch of people, one being someone who was related to and worked for the mob. I don't know exactly what mob it was, but allegedly reportedly that the mob boss wanted to get back at him and said that we're going to put him out. They're going to be D-E-D, dead, I tell you. He's going to be dead. Put a horse, put a horse head on his, on his bed. You hear me? I want him dead. No, that didn't come out the way I wanted to. But after several investigation, I mean, apparently, obviously, they're going to question the mob. The mob's like, dude, I don't even know who the fuck this guy is. I don't even, we don't even have beef with this dude. I don't give a shit about Jose. This it doesn't bother me, man. Yo, look, Pauly. Hey, Pauly, this fucking guy wants to talk about this fucking guy that we don't fucking know. So obviously that went nowhere. And so the, 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 the police and detectives started getting more and more suspicious on, on the whereabouts and how exactly the parents were found. See, if they were like me and they had the Scarface security cameras and they would have been able to see clearly what exactly happened. But I mean, they, I don't think they had that back in the 80s. In 1988, after getting caught in a string of burglaries, Eric was required by the court to meet with a therapist named Dr. Jerome Ozale. The therapist reached out to Eric soon after the murders and began meeting with the younger Menendez brother, and soon enough, Eric confessed to killing his parents. Ozale confided in his mistress, Judalon Smith, Judalon, which can call her Judy. <laughs> Judalon Smith, who would ultimately play a big part in the case. Why, oh, why would you confess to your goddamn mistress? He should be sued right there for breaking patient, client patient, or doctor patient confidentiality. That right there, that right there, though, that's a direct violation in his license and, and, and the rules and ethics for a psychologist. In no way, shape, or form, unless otherwise specified by court subpoenas or something other law, legal note saying you must break client confidentiality, you are no way, shape, or form allowed to break patient confidentiality. And by that, by telling his mistress and his mistress of all people. We remember remember this about JFK with Marilyn Monroe. He had her offed off. Allegedly, JFK had her killed or the brother had her killed because they, he spilled the beans about, about aliens and everything that was going around in Area 51. And because she was the mistress, she knew that if a woman was scorned, the mistress is going to go and talk and we're going to open up the books and it's just going to happen. So, in this same scenario, well, not in this this same scenario, but in a similar scenario, you have this doctor who has a mistress, and we know if she's a mistress, that means he is still married, meaning he has no intention to leave his wife to be with the mistress. So, why confessing the mistress something so important and risk this shit getting out and losing your license over, and, I mean, now you're a rat? Oh, I tell you. In an attempt to get a confession from Eric, the police convinced Craig Signorelli, one of Eric's close friends from high school and a tennis buddy, to wear a, wire, wear a wire while having lunch with him at a local beachfront restaurant. When Craig asked Eric if he killed his parents, Eric said no, but he eventually confessed to doing so to a psychologist, Jerome Ozell, who then told his mistress, Judy Smith. Smith later broke up with Ozale and told the police about the brother's involvement. Lyle was arrested on March 8, 1990, and Eric turned himself in three days later after returning to Los Angeles from Israel. Both were held without bail and separated from each other. Didn't I just say that? Didn't I just say that if you have a mistress and you fuck it up and break up with her or you do something to where you two are no longer clapping cheeks... She's gonna go out and spill whatever she can for financial gain to ruin your name and to get and to fuck you one last time without actually fucking you. And in this case, Judalon Smith said, "Yo, <laughs> I got some info that you're gonna want. Go ahead and sit down. Let me pull your coattails one time." And she told him, and the brothers were arrested. Why? Because they have them on tape. A lot of times the the therapy sessions are recorded via video or via tape. In this instance, because it's back in the 80s and early 90s, it was recorded on tape. In August 1990, Judge James Albrecht ruled that the tapes of the conversations between Eric and Oziel were admissible evidence since Oziel stated that Lyle allegedly threatened him and violated doctor-patient privilege. Albrecht's ruling was appealed, and the proceedings were then delayed for two years. Being delayed for two years, you think I have this shit beat. It's not going to happen. I beat this shit like Mike Tyson. I'm ready to gizzo. And then you're not. (laughs) And then you realize, damn, they're going to come back to me one time, two time, three time, none. The Supreme Court of California ruled in August 1992 that most of these tapes were admissible, excepting the tape in which Eric discussed the murders. After that decision, a Los Angeles County grand jury issued indictments in December 1992, charging the brothers with the murders of their parents. What sucks is that you can't dispute what's on audio. You have it there, it's recorded, it's there for life, unless someone deletes it and gets rid of it, you're done. You're done, Skis. Just hang it up. You might as well just tap out it's done and over with. They have you on tape saying, I did it, I killed my parents. And you would think of all places that Telling your therapy, your your therapist during a therapy session on recorded tapes that you would not have any problems with those tapes getting out. You can trust them. It's a secret. Don't worry about it. No, man. You you that's when you tell people that's when you tell the doctor, turn off the tape. I don't want this session recorded. And then you blurt out whatever you say. Cause now it's your word against his. And who are they gonna believe? You know what I mean? So let's get into the trial. Obviously, there was a trial. They confessed, they were arrested and charged for the murder of their parents. But I mean, god dang, I'm still tripping off of the brutality and in, in, in the, br- the brutal fashion in which they took out their parents. That's that's insane to me. The therapy sessions continued, and Ozell ultimately got both Eric and Lyle on tape confessing to the murders. Eric said they'd done it to put their mother out of her misery while Lyle made it clear that they were both in on the crime. Allegedly, what's being blamed is that the the Menendez brothers did it for a huge payout to for their multi-million dollar insurance policy that the dad had on him and his mother, or him and his wife. Kitty. What a silly name. Figuring out whether the tapes with the confessions fell under doctor-patient privilege or were admissible as evidence in court took two full years, with lawsuits and appeals flying back and forth in between the prosecution and the Menendez lawyers. Finally, the Supreme Court of California ruled that two of the three tapes were eligible to be used in the trial, including one that contained Lyle's admission of guilt. That's it. Wrapped up. Put a put a put a bow on it. Gift wrapped you gift wrapped your 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 confession to them by saying it on tape. The Menendez case became a national sensation when Court TV broadcast the trial in 1993, represented by their defense lawyer, Leslie Abrams, Abramson. Abrams, Abramson. That's a weird name. The brother stated that they were driven to murder by a lifetime of abuse at the hands of their parents, especially sexual abuse at the hands of their father who is described as a cruel perfectionist and pedophile. Didn't I mention at the beginning of the episode that there, there has to be some sort some sort of abuse to go on to make these kids turn into the sociopaths that they, that they are? I mean, no doubt about it. These two guys are sociopaths, no doubt. But there, there, has to, there, there had to be some sort of abuse. And now the Menendez brothers, Kyle and Lyle, are admitting, yo, they, we were abused heavily as children, and this would drove us to do what we did. We just had enough. Meanwhile, their mother was described as an enabling, selfish, mentally unstable alcoholic and drug addict who encouraged her husband's behavior and was also sometimes violent towards the brothers. It is said that she was bitter, depressed, and sad because of the multiple affairs that Jose had while they were alive and married. The allegation against the couple were supported by their families with multiple witnesses testifying. The brother's cousin, Andy Cano, Cano said that as a child, he was told by Eric about the sexual abuse, which they both described as penis massages. Just wow. Fucking wow. The brother's cousin, Andy Cano, said that as a child, he was told by Eric about the sexual abuse, which they both described as penis massages. Come on, Man. Why? It's fucking why. You have a wife there ready to give it up to you. you. You have multiple affairs ready to give it up to you. Why fuck with your kids, man? Why? Why fuck with kids, period? I mean, I'm not going to say it, but I'm going to say it. I'm glad he was, he's, he's, he was dead. I'm glad he was unalived. Pedophiles don't, don't need to be living and walking amongst us. Diane Vander Mullen, another cousin of the brother, stated that she once told Kitty about Jose's molestation of Lyle, although Kitty told her that it was false. Physical evidence was also provided by the defense, which included nude and sexual photographs showing Lyle and Eric's genitalia taken by their father when they were children. Come on. You had evidence right there. Oh, my gosh, Boy, I tell you. The prosecution argued, however, that the murders were done for financial gain. Lyle's prosecutor, Bam- Pam Boz- Bozanik, argued that, quote, men could not be raped because they lacked the necessary equipment to be raped. End Quote the prosecutor, Pam Bozanik, argued that men could not be raped because they lack the necessary equipment to be raped. Wow, wow, just wow. We, we don't have the we don't have the 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 necessary equipment. We have a brown hole. We have a little hole in the back there that dudes like to put like to put things in there too. Damn, that's fucked up. Eric's prosecutor, Lester Kuriyama, suggested that Eric was homosexual and that the sexual abuse was actually consensual. What the fuck? Really? Eric's prosecutor, Lester Kuriyama, suggested that Eric was homosexual and that the sexual abuse was actually consensual. Get the fuck out of here. Why would sexual abuse from your father be consensual? Who wants to be sexually sexually intimate with their father at such a young age? Is, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure there's some, there's some, there's some issues out there that people have. I'm not, I, I don't know them, so I'm not going to categorize everybody, but I have yet to read anything like that. I mean, maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, maybe I'm just thinking on one side and on how I feel and think about that. But I doubt that, that a child, a little boy or little girl, a little child, we'll just say little child is going to want to be, is going to be. Voluntarily engaging in sexual relations with their father at such a young age—I doubt that. I, I heavily doubt that. But then you're, and then the prosecutor's going to say because he's gay that it was it was uh, consensual. Get the fuck out of here, man. they br- prosecutors are brutal. God damn it, they're brutal. They have no heart at all. A few weeks before the night of the murders, Lyle and Eric stated that the sexual abuse started again, leading to several confrontations within the family. They also claimed that their father threatened to kill them if they did not keep the abuse a secret. Around that time, the brothers found out that their parents were hiding rifles in their bedrooms, which led them to buying their own shotguns for protection. Allegedly, the brothers were were paranoid that that the dad was actually going to kill them for fear of the the information of sexual abuse was going to get out. The brothers became paranoid and decided they're going to purchase their own firearms in order to defend themselves from their dad, who... Was allegedly paranoid that the kids that the sons were gonna, the Menendez brothers were gonna air out all their dirty laundry. The last confrontation happened inside the house den on August 20th, 1989, a few minutes before Kitty and Jose were killed. The brothers den stated that their father closed the den's door at the time, which was unusual. Paranoid and afraid that they would be killed by their own parents, Lyle and Eric went outside of the house to load their shotguns. Eric stated, saying, quote, as I went into the room, I just started firing, In quote. Now you have premeditation, my boy. You went outside, intentionally loaded your weapon, and went back in to the same place, knowing where your parents were at, and you went in there and just started firing. That, that's premeditation. I mean, who to believe? Are you going to believe the dad? Are you going to believe the Menendez brothers? Was there abuse? Was there not abuse? I mean, I will always give someone the benefit of the doubt when they talk about being sexually abused, physically abused, emotionally abused. I always will give someone the benefit of the doubt. Apparently, they had several, several pieces of evidence proving that they were sexually molested, sexually assaulted by their dad. But the but the district attorney's going to say that because he was gay that it was consensual. Get the fuck out of here. The trial ended with two deadlocked juries, and as a result, Las- Los Angeles County District Attorney Gil Garcetti announced immediately that the brothers would be retried. The second trial was somewhat less publicized in part because Judge Stanley Weisberg did not allow cameras in the courtroom. During the second trial, Weisberg also did not allow much defense testimony about the sexual abuse claims and did not allow the jury to vote on manslaughter charges instead of murder charges. Hmm, that's a little fishy. The, the, court, the judge did not allow the sexual abuse claims as a defense. Huh, and the jury was not allowed to vote on manslaughter charges, just directly murder charges? That's a little suspicious. Both brothers were eventually convicted on two counts of first-degree murder and of conspiracy to commit murder. In the penalty phase of the trial, they were sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Life in prison without the possibility of parole. They deserved it. They, they, I mean, they killed their parents in cold blood. They say they, they admitted it on tape. You can't, you can't fight something you already admitted. It doesn't work that way. The jury said that the abuse defense was not a factor in the deliberations, but decided not to impose the death penalty because both brothers had no criminal record or history of violence prior to the murders. So you're going to give them life in prison. All right. However, unlike the juries in the previous trials, the jury in the penalty phase rejected the defense's theory that the brothers killed their parents out of fear, despite all the evidence and testimony as it was believed that they committed the murders in order to inherit their father's wealth. That was the initial thing. That's what I remember hearing about. I remember hearing that the, the lawyers repeatedly accuse the Menendez brothers of murdering their, their family in cold blood to inherit the millions and millions that the father had an insurance policy and saved up in other bonds and tied up in, in things that were promised to his family once they died. I remember hearing that in the in the late in the early 90s. As a child, I remember hearing that shit. And I was like, well, what, what does that mean? I, I, know, I didn't know what that means. And, and whenever I asked my mom, she wouldn't fully explain it to me because I was still a child. So I didn't, I didn't really understand exactly what she was trying to explain to me. During the penalty phase of the trial, Abramson, the brother's defense lawyer, apparently told a defense witness named William Vacari to edit his own notes. But the district attorney's office decided not to, not to launch a criminal investigation on Abramson. They wanted to hang the Benin his brothers out to dry. They, they just want to get rid of them. They just wanted to say, yo, you did it. Let's get it out. Let's, let's done. Put a wrap on it. No, no, do not pass go. Do not collect $2 million. You're done. Go ahead and take a seat in the back of the prison. You're going to be there until the day you die. Both brothers also filed motions for a mistrial claiming that they suffered irreversible damage in the penalty phase as a result of possible misconduct and ineffective representation by Abramson. On July 2nd, 1996, Weisberg sentenced the brothers to life in prison without the possibility of parole and also sentenced them to consecutive sentences for the murders and the charges of conspiracy to commit murder. God damn. Just throw everything at him. Let's get into their incarceration. I mean, when I was reading through with all of this, I read that like five different websites on, on five different things. It's, it's taken me forever to get through all of this information. But it's undeniable, undisputed that the, they did it. They 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 went and shot them killed their parents in cold blood. What the motive was, it's still up in the air. I don't know if it was really out of sociopathic Rebellion or or retaliation from the, the several years of abuse that was alleged, or that they that the brothers claimed to have suffered and endured during their childhood from their father, or was it legitimately that they just wanted to, on top of get rid of their parents because of their cruel and, and disgusting behaviors, they also wanted to collect in the collect on the multi millions that that the father had in for insurance for life insurance. No one knows. No one knows except for the Menendez brothers. And of course, they're they're going to stick to the story of, of being self for self-defense as a result of being physically and sexually abused for years and years and years and years. You be the judge. You let me know what you think. Do you think they did it out of self-defense, or do you think that they did it to inherit the multi-millions for the life insurance policy? Let me know. Graveyardgrumbler at mail.com, Graveyard Grumbler Podcast on Podbean and Instagram. Let me know what you think. I, I'm curious know, do you think they did it out of self-defense because of the abuse or did you did do you think they did it as the primary motive to receive the multi-millions the father had in, in life insurance let me know as in their pre-trial detention the California Department of Corrections separated the brothers and set them and sent them to different prisons since they were considered to be maximum security inmates they were segregated from other prisoners well yeah they're going to get fucked up They remained in separate prisons until February 2018 when Lyle was was moved from Mule Creek State Prison in Northern California to the Richard J. Donovan Correctional Facility in San Diego County where they were housed in separate units. Eric also spent some time at Pleasant Valley Prison in Colinga, California. On April 4th, 2018, Lyle was moved into the same housing unit as Eric, reuniting them for the first time since they began serving their sentences nearly 22 years earlier. The brothers burst into tears and hug each other at their first meeting in the housing unit. The unit where they are housed is reserved for inmates who agree to participate in education and rehabilitation programs without creating disruptions. That was only four years ago. That means that they are still around, rotting away in prison, which they should be. You, you kill someone, you shoot someone so bad that they're unrecognizable. Your own mother, unrecognizable. Yeah, you deserve to to do life in prison. I mean, guilty. You you admit it to the murders, regardless of what your motive was, regardless of what the motive was. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what the reason was. You you brutally murdered your parents. Every murderer should be, should brought away in prison or or my opinion, should get the death penalty. A one-way ticket, fast track to the death penalty. A flash pass, just boom. I'm here for the death penalty. Dead man walking. Let's go ahead and get you, uh, let's get you hooked up and get you taken care of. No, it's not about tax dollars. I don't give a shit about tax dollars. What I give a shit is allowing someone to live in some some sort of comfort for the rest of their entire life. Now, I'm not saying that being in prison is comfortable. What I'm saying is that being alive is a comfort. Regardless of the torture state that you're in during your, your life, you still have your life unlike your victims that you voluntarily took their life. That's what I'm talking about. Graveyard Grumbler's final wrap. Let's go ahead and wrap this up. I mean, again, this, this, yes, I know this was a kind of a short episode, but this was one of my my most thought about episodes that I've been thinking about for the longest time. So let's go ahead and wrap it up. Graveyard Grumbler. <laughs> Graveyard Grumbler's final wrap. On February 27, nineteen ninety eight, the California Court of Appeal upheld the brothers' murder convictions, and on May twenty eighth, nineteen ninety nine. The Supreme Court of California declined to review the case, thus allowing the decision of the appellate court to stand. Meaning, they can't appeal shit. It's done deal. It's sewed up. It's written in scroll and stone. It's done. You're not going to be able to do anything about it. Both brothers filed habeas corpus petitions with the Supreme Court of California, which were denied in 1999. Having exhausted their appeal remedies in state court, they filed separate habeas corpus petitions in the United States District Court. Again, it doesn't matter how many appeals you have. You were on on audio, you're on tape admitting to the murders, saying you killed, I killed my parents, not me, but them. They killed their parents. You admit it on, on tape. You can't get away from that. You were found guilty. There's no getting away from, from you murdering your parents. You, you admit it. They threw the book at you. The book is stuck on your face. There's no appealing to it. On March 4, 2003, a magistrate judge recommended the denial of, of the petitions and the district court adopted the recommendation saying, you can no longer appeal, there's nothing going on, it's done, It's that's it, stop it. Stop wasting fucking paper, stop wasting time. They then decided to appeal to the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. On September 7th, 2005, a three-judge panel denied both their habeas corpus petitions, although Judge Alex Kozinski stated that the trial judge changed many of his rulings during the two trials. I didn't really find much of that afterwards. I, I don't know exactly what they mean that the judge changed many of his rulings during the two trials. So one of the big things that I was curious about during this whole trial when I was younger and I started looking about it and, and, and learning about it and hearing about it live as they were being tried, I, I just couldn't understand why they would kill. Their, I mean, I didn't know about, about sexual and physical abuse when I was eight. 10 years old, and we just that stuff just wasn't talked about in my family. I just didn't know about it. I'm not saying that it didn't exist, but I just didn't know about it. I wasn't educated on that, on that issue. So when I heard, when I remember hearing the Menendez brothers talking about being sexually molested and, and, and abused by their father, and I said, well, I, I didn't know what that meant. And of course, as I got older, I learned what it meant, and I was horrified. Like, holy fuck, these guys were, were, were really fucked up by their dad. But I still, I still have a hard time believing and understanding that that was the only reason. I'm, I'm sure that had a huge factor. The overbearing perfectionist that, his, that their father was, the physical and sexual abuse and the lack of, of support from their mother is going to drive anybody mad. It's going to drive anybody insane. But I personally feel that there was also that part of wanting to be well off without their parents. And get rid of them. So my my learned opinion is that they murdered their family, number one, for financial gain. And number two, for payback for what the father and mother did and how they were treated as kids. I, I I, I wholeheartedly believe that was the reason. Financial gain, number one. Revenge, number two. And unfortunately, they couldn't keep their mouth shut. I mean, not unfortunately, but fortunately. They were unable to keep their mouth shut and admitted to the whole crime, and now they laid in the bed they made. We're going to go ahead and end the show there. I appreciate everyone. Thank you so much for for sticking with me for 100 episodes. Again, my Patreon is on fire right now. I've been keeping up with it. I have time. I've been pumping out episodes every week now for the last couple weeks, for the last few weeks. Now, this latest one are chilling 911 calls. Holy shit, they are some creepy, crazy, heartfelt 911 calls that I have on my Patreon. It's only $5. I have one tier. My price will never go up. My price will never go down. It'll stay $5 for as long as I have my Patreon. No matter how much content I put on my Patreon, it's always going to be $5, no matter what. So if you're interested, I will drop the link in the, in the show notes. Go ahead and click it. And as always, I have a surprise for you. Do not go away from this episode until you hear the end credits of The of uh, this is the end. Don't until you hear the end credits. Do not scroll away from this because I have a a gift, as much as I always do, as a lot of times as I always do. Just pay attention to it. Again, I want to thank everybody very, very much from the bottom of my heart for listening to me for 100 episodes and for going on two years, going on three years now. Thank you so much. I appreciate each and every one of you. And as always, good morning, good day, good night, goodbye. Emergency? Yes, Uh
2: police. What's the problem? Sounds... uh. What's the problem? <laughs> What's the problem? <laughs> <laughs> Someone killed my parents. Pardon me? <laughs> <laughs> Someone killed my parents. What? Who? Are they still there? Yes. Yeah. Uh, the people. What? No, no, no. <laughs> were they shot? Oh, hey, Matt, uh, Were they shot? Yes. They were shot? Yes. Just... Uh, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> what I anything like anything uh, <laughs> what <laughs> happened? Uh, trying to get to for their other units is funny. <laughs> is the person still there? Okay. What happened? We have units around. What happened? I don't know. Who shot who? I don't know. You came home and found who shot? My mom and dad. You know what? They're still in the house, the people that did the shooting. Let me talk to Eric. <laughs> Eric. Let me, let me, who is the person that was shot? My mom and my dad. Your mom and dad? My mom and my dad. Okay, hold on a second. <laughs> okay, we're on our way over there with an the ambulance. Okay, I gotta go. <laughs> okay. Hello, this is the police department. Yes. Okay, I want you to come outside.
1: father have sexual contact with you? Yes. And how did it start?
3: It just started with after sports practices he would massage me and uh, we would have these talks and he would show me and he would uh, fondle me, and he would ask me to do the same with him, and I would I would touch him. And we would undress. Um, just became more involved.
2: Um, what do you mean more involved?
3: Uh, we would be in the bathroom, and uh, um, it would he would put me on my knees and. He would guide me, all my movements, and I would um, uh, have oral sex with him.
1: Did you want to do this? At some point, did he do some other things to you? Yes. What else did he do to you?
3: He did me. And he said that he didn't mean to hurt me, (laughs) and he loved me.
1: What did he tell you about telling people?
3: (laughs) He just said that it was our secret that bad things would happen to me if I told anybody. (laughs) And I told him I never would. <laughs>
1: uh, the Eric Menendez defense, Your Honor, calls Eric Menendez.
4: Well, I wanted to be liked as much as Lyle.
1: What do you believe was the originating cause of you and your brother ultimately winding up, shooting your parents?
4: Um, me telling
1: You telling what?
3: Me telling Lyle that, uh...
1: You telling Lyle what? Was it you telling Lyle about something that was happening? My dad. leading question?
3: Um, my, if you don't uh, ask my, my dad. Wait one second, Mr. Andrews. okay? Let me no,
1: answer. No, no, he
3: was in the process of answering so there's no need to ask him Can to you me. answer the question? Yes.
1: Okay, it was you telling Lyle what?
3: That my dad had been molesting me.
4: He would stick things in me as he was giving me oral sex or at times he would just sit on the bed with his legs up, uh, um, spread, and with his back to the to the back of the bed, and he would have me give him oral, me oral sex, and he would stick the needles or the tacks into my thighs uh, as he was doing this.
1: Were there times when, following one of these episodes with your father, you'd be crying? Yes. Did your mother ever come upon you when you were crying? Uh,
4: sometimes after these, I'd have to go downstairs to dinner, um, or afterwards and she would come when she'd see me crying and uh... Did she
1: ever ask you, Eric, what are you crying about? No. Would she ask you that sometimes if you were crying and it had nothing to do with sex with your father? Yes. And what would she say, if anything, to you when you were crying following these episodes with your father?
4: She would say, do what I told you to do
1: what did you tell what had she told you to do
4: she she taught me how to hide my tears and to uh, not cry and if I was crying she taught me how to get rid of the tears I just wanted more than anything else uh, that when I died that no one would find out that this was happening to me
1: did you do something to your brother
2: (laughs) yes What did you do to your brother?
3: I took him out to the woods. Whenever I felt, I don't know, I took him out sometimes. And I took uh, a, a toothbrush also, and I played with Eric in the same way. I'm sorry. And he says it with
4: such shame. But what is even more convincing, and I was sitting about 10 feet from Eric, is I saw this vein start popping out of his forehead as he hears his brother apologizing, as their own secret horrible sordidness comes out into public on television. That emotion, that's what a victim, not an actor, that's what a victim looks like.
2: When you were
1: about 13, did you think that it might be happening to someone else? Yes. And who did you think it was happening to?
3: Eric. He told me that Eric was... uh, that Eric made things up sometimes, but that that it would stop. And uh he, we should keep it just between us or he'd kill me
1: Did you ever tell anybody what you thought was going on?
3: No I told him I would never tell anybody. I just wanted to stop
2: This is the end this is the end this is the end You just.
0: Graveyard Grumbler Podcast.